It's a big week when RHAP is on the road in Chicago. Check out my live show from Chicago. That's going to be up on Thursday, Wednesday night. Shannon Gus is going to be live with you with Kelly Wentworth after Survivor. And we preview the Dondi finale with Dealer No Deal Island host Joe Manganiello all right here on RHAP. We know reality TV. Hello everyone, I'm Sarah Carradine, podcasting from Aora, Sydney. I'm Mari Forth. And this is Crime Scene, the true crime review podcast where we get to the heart of how true crime stories are told. You can get this fine program along with all the fantastic reality TV content by subscribing to robhasawebsite.com slash feed. That's R-H-A-P-U-P-S feed. We would love it if you would subscribe to our feed as well. Please go to robhasawebsite.com slash crime feed. You'll get your true crime on Tuesdays. If you've already subscribed, thank you very much. Sarah, what did we watch this week? This week we watched Till Murder Do Us Part, Soaring versus Haysom. It's a four-part docuseries on Netflix and was directed by Andre Horman and Lena Leonhard. And with us to pick our way through this twisty tale is journalist and critic Eve Beatty. Hi, Eve. Hey, guys. Mm-hmm. Thank you for having me. Yes. So we have some true crime news, Mari. We covered Take mm-hmm. Care of Maya in episode 62 with the wonderful Jason Reed. Last week, a Florida jury found Johns Hopkins All Children's Hospital in St. Petersburg was liable for charges including medical negligence and false imprisonment in its treatment of Maya Kowalski in 2016. The hospital had accused Maya's parents, Jack and Beata, of abusing their daughter and barred them from seeing her during months of treatment, including withholding pain medication from Maya, who was then 10 years old. Beata completed suicide, believing it was the only way for Maya to get the treatment she needed. Johns Hopkins All Children's Hospital has been ordered to pay $211 million in compensatory damages and $50 million in punitive damages for the false imprisonment, battery, medical negligence and other charges. Eve, you're working on a piece on this case. How does this judgment strike you? Well, I think that this is a good example of how the uh, hospital's efforts to delay the case in hoping that the people who brought it would lose interest or give up, which is, you know, it's a common legal strategy. Everybody does Mm -hmm. it. I think it backfired in this case because the series was so widely adopted. And even if every juror, you know, says that they were not familiar with it, we prior, you know, when they made the uh, documentary, very few people other than the people who'd read the series in the Sarasota newspaper or the long read in the cut were familiar with the case. And now we all were. And so arguably we had a jury that had an opinion on the case already. I'm not saying that's what happened, but I do think that that's a huge factor here. Yeah, that I wouldn't be surprised at that. Uh, Seeing that documentary was the first time I had heard about this case. I'm happy that this judgment came down like this as somebody who works, who's worked in several hospitals. I think it's a good way to deter other hospitals from taking this type of drastic measures when honestly, there might not be enough evidence for it. Uh, We talked about on that episode about how how often this actually does happen, where some nurses and doctors could report parents you know, and might not be out of the goodness of their hearts. You know, it might be because they didn't like how the parents talk to you. And then now all of a sudden they're calling the police and getting your 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 children taken away from you. I, I talked about like with like medical racism and how like um, more than likely black women and, and women of color and, and families of colors are the ones that are being broken up by hospitals, bringing up claims of, of child abuse. So it, it's 
It's not saying like that doesn't happen, but hopefully it'll make these hospitals think twice when they're doing stuff like this, because this case felt extraordinary in how they were treating Beata and her husband and, and her family. Like it, it wasn't, it didn't feel like a normal case of concern for, for the child. And we know that's proven because we had the like text messages and stuff and the staff between the staff that was very, didn't seem like they were concerned for Maya, (laughs) if, you know, if anything. So if you haven't watched that, that documentary you haven't listened to our episode 62 definitely go check that out you know nothing can bring Beata back unfortunately and Maya in the documentary talks about the pain that she went through the emotional trauma that she went through during those months and so you know her and her brother and and her father so you know they'll never get some of that stuff back but at least they will be compensated for it and hopefully this won't happen again to another family well i think an important thing to consider too is the fact that for the other people whose children were uh taken from them either on you know with actual cause or um for baseless reasons those other people who did not have the means and um, mm-hmm. the financial wherewithal that the Kowalskis had agreed to what's known as a care plan. And part of agreeing to that care plan means that you have taken from you your ability to litigate or to file suit against oh, yeah. not just the hospital, but also, as you might recall from the documentary, I believe it was laid out properly in the documentary, yeah, you I know, that so. That there is that there's a subcontractor relationship going on here. Um, that Florida's child welfare operations are subcontracted to private organizations, and the person who is primarily responsible for the removal of the child from the parents and so many of these other children that we heard referenced towards the end of the documentary was a subcontractor. She didn't work for the hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she was just called in, and she. You know, so sort of like the buck stopped with her and between her and a an appointed judge who worked for you know the legal system. Those are the folks who made the sort of final decisions. But it's John Johns Hopkins that is uh, paying the bill. So I think it's it's going to make sense to continue to watch and see how this is appealed, because if the hospital was so willing to go to the mat as opposed to offering a cushy settlement, I think there's more to come. Mm. My other question is, will they see the $261 million? Well, I mean, that's where the appeals come in. I mean, anytime you see one of these huge settlements, right, that's not what you end up taking home mm. because, uh, because of the appeal process. We'll keep watching that, listeners, and keep you updated. Now, Eve, last time you were with us in July, there had just been breaking news on the Long Island serial killer case with the arrest of Rex Howman. Uh, can you tell us what's happened since then? Well, what's happened since then is that depending on when uh, you're listening to this podcast, Rex will have just been in or is about to appear in court. He has a hearing scheduled for uh, Wednesday, uh, November the 15th. The last time he was in court was towards the end of September and um, the investigation sort of been ongoing since then. That It seems like the prosecution is building an extremely strong case. And right now, a lot of stuff is being kept under wraps. So we don't have sort of you know, the sort of level of detail in terms of what's happening with the case. But we do know that when we're talking about uh, reality television and true crime properties, we do know that there is at least a a Netflix documentary. And we also know that um, some of the folks who have who worked on Lost Girls are coming back and doing some stuff. So I suspect that we are going to see stuff on streaming even before uh, the trial actually begins. Hmm. I believe I was reminded when I watched last Friday's Dateline episode with Andrea Canning in her crisp white shirt, I could never. Uh, It's a really good resource. It's called The Hunt for the Long Island Serial Killer. It's about 90 minutes long, but it's it's a good summary of sort of where we are 
up to about now. And mm. I was reminded that the arrest was earlier than law enforcement had wanted it to be because of some fears about, about Rex. So is that what you mean, Eve, by saying that the case is being built since that 12th of July uh, arrest? Well, no, not necessarily, because it's very rare that when someone's arrested that the prosecution has their case completely in line. And the U.S. court system, it can take two years, sometimes longer, depending on uh, sort of the level of the case to actually get from arrest to trial. So, uh, you know, that's one of the reasons for all these hearings is to continue to affirm that in this case that Rex should be held without bail and that, you know, that the case is moving forward. But, I mean, it's hard to think of a case, especially a case like this that involves uh, information from so long ago. You wouldn't have all the information that you need, everything that you need to go to trial tomorrow uh, before you make an arrest. Mm-hmm. Just, just making an arrest give law enforcement sort of more powers to search and seize and all of that, demand documents or demand records? Not necessarily, uh, but uh, you, you sure do know that they are interested in you if you've been arrested. I think uh, searching somebody's house uh, and leaving them free and not arresting them in a case like this would be pretty irresponsible because there is the possibility that someone would destroy evidence and do other things to um, sort of retroactively cover their tracks. So arresting someone and uh, making sure that a judge is going to agree that they should continue to be held. And it seems like they had enough information to do that. Perfect. Yes, it's it's quite it's quite, it's quite something. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do recommend that Dateline episode because they do go back and they talk with relatives and friends of some of the four women who have been referred to as the Gilgo Four, but uh, as you know, on this podcast, we do not like giving a group of people who have been killed a number. All right, so let's talking about a group of people who've been killed. Pretty mm. black, pretty dark uh, segue. <laughs> nice segue. <laughs> yes. Uh, let's get to the crime covered in Soaring versus Hasem. This is a case I knew nothing about before I watched this documentary. In March 1985, Derek and Nancy Hasem were brutally murdered by stabbing and slashing. Their daughter Elizabeth, then 20, and her boyfriend Yen Soaring, then 18, were suspected of the double murder. They fled the US and were captured in England. Yen's confessed to the murders during police interrogations there. Elizabeth pleaded guilty to accessory before the fact and was sentenced to 90 years in prison. Once the possibility of the death penalty was withdrawn, Jens was extradited to the US and tried for the murders. He claimed his innocence both at his trial and in all the years since then. He claimed he confessed to protect Elizabeth, thinking that as he had a diplomatic passport, he would be sent to Germany. Elizabeth testified against him. He was found guilty and given two life sentences. In 2019, the governor of Virginia pardoned both Jens and Elizabeth after they had served each 33 years or so in prison. Mario, get us started. What were your overall thoughts about this docuseries? Uh, Well, just like you, I had no idea about this case. I think I actually thought it was a different case (laughs) when you presented it to me. And I was like, oh, this is not the case I thought it was. I overall think I liked the property overall, but it was four episodes. It, it was four episodes and I found some of the episodes more compelling than the others. I found myself having to rewatch the first episode over and over again because I kept falling asleep. Uh, but like overall, I guess I like the subject matter. I like the like the presentation of the case. I feel like I, I walked away like learning stuff about the case, but I'm not sure if it was like executed to the best of its ability. Like it's, it's like, it was good, but could it have been better? A a perfectly reasonable question. What are your overall, (laughs) what are your overall thoughts on this docuseries? 
Oh, I know exactly what you mean, Mari. I wasn't falling asleep, but I think that all of us who consume true crime sort of feel that we have a cushion to like run out and pull the focaccia out of the oven or whatever. <laughs> and I do yeah. feel, I mean, and this is arguably to the property's benefit that I did have to like go back and rewind because it yeah. moves along and packs in enough information without fluff enough that mm -hmm. that falling asleep or screwing around on your phone or, exactly. you know, mm -hmm. or grabbing the bread, um, like you come back and you're like, wait, <laughs> she, was, she was sleeping with her mom. What's going on? Um, Menendez. Um, so I know what you mean. Like it was definitely a property that required your full attention to follow the plot, mm -hmm. but it, I felt like it also had that sort of podcasty habit of leading you onto dead ends. Mm -hmm. And then as opposed to saying, you know, giving you sort of the linear thing, like leading you to dead ends to sort of like keep the plot going as opposed to keeping the history going. And I'll accept that a few times, but you know, full me four times and I've started to get a little annoyed. Yes. I mean, I like a procedural as much as the next person who likes a procedural. And that was the part I liked about, about this property very much, but I don't have to go down every dead end that the investigators went down. You can, you can skip those little appendixes and just give me a little bit more of the straight line. I wondered how, the four episodes would be filled. Uh, we're often critical of three episodes. So I thought, oh, four, <laughs> we, we're in trouble. But for some reason, the four justified itself, I, th I think, to a, to a greater extent, it was justified. And mm -hmm. particularly when we get to episode four and suddenly the pace picks up. Suddenly we're getting the contemporary forensics, the contemporary DNAs, mm -hmm. the people looking back on the police investigation from 30 years before. And there was a sort of a quickening in that episode that I don't think you could have gotten without the first three episodes, the first talking about Jens and Elizabeth's relationship, the second concentrating on Elizabeth, the third concentrating on Jens. Yeah, I, I really thought I so I didn't look. I just went on Netflix and hit play. So like me and my husband were watching. We we're like, okay, episode three, and then and then it, as it ends, it's like one more episode to go. We were like, oh, I thought there was, I thought that was it. Like, me too. Me too. Me too. I was like, what else could they? What what else could there be? And and episode it was a lot. Yeah, exactly. So much. Probably my favorite. My favorite episode. So it was. Like, and suddenly there's the former president of Germany. <laughs> I've been here for episode four. I seen three Virginia governors. I was like, what? <laughs> like not knowing anything about this case. And I like, I was like, huh? So yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, the four episodes, I agree with you, Sarah. Like it's not that I'm saying that it could have been shorter. Like I'm not coming here saying it could have been shorter. I'm, I'm just definitely coming here thinking like it was definitely stronger episodes than, than others for sure. Yes, we got a lot about the letters, and I think for for some people, they're going to really, really enjoy the letters between the 18-year-old Jens and the 20-year-old Elizabeth as they sort of passionate outsiders meeting at college and, you know, if the world, it's just us. Uh, I, I really only needed a taste of that. They give us quite a lot of it, and I know that the investigation depended on it, but show me the things the investigation depended on, not just sort of overflowered uh, teenage writings. I, I, I got it. Uh, but then another, another viewer might really appreciate that deep dive. While we're on that, let's talk about the media. Before we dive into the people, let's talk about the media that is used by the documentary makers. There is contemporaneous B-roll, some marvellous 80s hair in the courtrooms and with the reporters. There are old photos. There are old videos. There are the love letters and diaries recreated, revoiced. I didn't mind that. We have reenactments. Okay, not, not the worst we've ever seen. We have news footage, which I do love seeing how the case was perceived and, and put out by the media at the time. We have unheralded crime scene photos. Oh, boy, guys. We can talk a little bit about that, but I feel like in order mm. to understand the case, we actually had to see it, but I would have liked warning because they are 
ter- they're gruesome and unblurred. Let's put it that way. Well, Sarah, we apparently have- you were not on a row of treadmills like I was when those photos oh, started to roll and both people next to me audibly gasped. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. so some right Imagine here I am. Shoulder. People, yeah, this, this guy and this guy. Yeah. That's what I get for, for peeking. Yes, exactly. Eyes, eyes on your own dials. Yeah. Uh, we have uh, audio of police interviews, we have newspapers and we have the ticking clock. So they're it sounds like that's so scattered it shouldn't work. But for me, all the different types of media really wove together. Eve, how did you find it in general there, that that use of the different styles? I thought it was, I thought it, um, it kept, I don't know. It's like always so interesting to me. Like, how do you find a way to make this a visual medium, given that, I could just read this whole thing in like half an hour, right? Mm-hmm. Or I could listen to this podcast and be doing something else and or driving or whatever. So the links that that documentary producers go to make it so I have to watch the screen, besides of course the subtitles. Um, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's always interesting to me and it is sort of a crapshoot, but I thought that the especially reenactments are something that a lot of times I have a real problem with because I think that they frequently sort of uh, demonstrate bias uh, in ways that are not always sort of like helpful. Um, it's like the aristocrats, like you suddenly sort of see maybe how the filmmakers are thinking about things. Um, but I thought the reenactments, with the possible exception of them rolling around in the, in the Marriott, um, mm-hmm. were solid and brought sort of like a nice reminder of the time. I could have lived without some of like sort of the repetition of walking across the street to the movie theater, et cetera, et cetera. And I could have watched the courtroom footage, especially uh. of both of the kids testifying, because that to me, that was fascinating. That was fascinating. Uh-huh. And, that, and also the reactions of the community members that to me in a lot of ways was the real that and the Santa Claus looking newscaster guy um, <laughs> where sort of like the two things that were like the real heart of the show for me mm-hmm. yeah i agree I, the i was living by the the all of the court footage because i felt like that was the most intriguing especially when we're getting elizabeth's um side of the story versus yen's side they both um testified elizabeth pled guilty so her whole court case was just her sentencing of the five-day sentencing hearing and i was truly fascinated by that i thought it was really good the the way she speaks too is is very like can we talk about her accent what's the deal yes we we can my parents what what is it yeah you you're you're from virginia ma'am she went to bo- she went to boarding school in england it's she was sent so by her that girl and Mar- mari you know what i'm talking about that girl who goes like to study like to exchange for a yep. semester and comes back with an accent yep. it's so that it's very that it was so it was so funny like <laughs> he kept my husband was completely like what is this accent like every time she it was like talking. madonna's accent <laughs> it was it was sort of anna delvey uh, elizabeth yeah. holmes yes. I don't know but i'm not gonna lie it worked for me it totally worked for me because she also talked in like poetry almost to me too and they, and especially when they thought they got her on the lady macbeth stuff and and i i don't know i get it they're they're both I, Sarah, I know you said you you didn't like a lot of the letter stuff, but I didn't. I actually didn't mind it. Like, I I, I I'm okay with that notebook style, like recreations of reading the the letters. I, I actually I didn't mind it at all. It's very it's very fascinating to me when you when you're hearing them talk to each other. And since the both of them thought they were, you could tell they they really gave off that vibe, like they thought they were way smarter than everybody else, and they both were. I don't I can't remember what their majors and still were, do I think yeah well, you know exactly and so I did like I did like hearing hearing them talk um but yeah I I the, the timeline I appreciate it because if you're gonna do all of this jumping around please yes let me know now was I really paying attention to the dates no 
I don't think I was like after the twentieth one. You're really not. I I don't care. Like I'm not, I'm kind of at least just looking at the year, really. Um, but I do appreciate that it was there because it helped me ground um ground myself in in the narrative and the story. Um, so yeah, yeah, it's like the production value was was pretty high. Like you said, the reenactments. No, thank you. <laughs> they're, look, they're not the worst. Uh, I yeah. think they wanted to have something visual underneath the readings of letters and the yeah. audio from from the police interrogation. Yeah, because so, I, I think, I think yeah. they wanted to show the difference, like the especially in their stories, like the complete differences yes. within their stories. So I thought that was effective for that, like when when they were both telling the different stories. And once the shock had faded, if it did, how did you find these crime scene photos, Mari? <laughs> Yeah, uh, I, I I did. I actually I did want to see more. I was so happy we got. I, oh, you know, I was happy we got charts and graphs. Yes, you love those charts. Crime scene chart. <laughs> I was like, oh, thank God. Like, like if if at least it's not just pictures of the body, then that's all you're showing me. You're not showing me anything else about the crime scene. The fact that the fact that we got like the full like layout like a, a blueprint of the layout of the crime scene i was like oh thank you <laughs> thank you thank you thank you um and we got a little bit of reenactments for the crime scene as well so it wasn't too bad um when they were doing the the supposed what happenings and so um i i appreciate it uh, like if you're gonna give it to me give it give it all to me i guess you know um and i just kind of like it like i just <laughs> held my hand over to, over the parts <laughs> i didn't want to see um, but um, I appreciated it. I, there was a lot of things I was yelling at my TV. Um, <laughs> um, I was, they were like, oh, they found Opa's blood. I'm like, what is the, what is the, um, what are the parents' blood types? You know, like, that's why I kept yelling at the TV and stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, this was, um, this was really good, really high on the forensics. It gets the forensics thumbs up for me, especially the, the fourth episode. Who was surprised to see Jens immediately? Like sometimes they keep, if they have the main person as an interview, they keep it as a surprise. Here he's the first person we see. Then we sort of go off and tell his story, but we know that we have Jens, Eve. How did you find it? It's a little unbalanced, it must be said, because Elizabeth doesn't speak. We find out in the fourth episode that her half-siblings have accepted her back but said, please don't do any more interviews so it is necessarily unbalanced but was it unnecessarily unbalanced do you think well since i knew that this was a german production i was sort of prepared for him to be involved recently for canopy which is a streaming service i moderated this sort of internal panel with the filmmakers of this documentary called subject which is not just about true crime but what it's about is sort of the business and process of documentary making and the impact that it has on these subjects of the documentary. And one of the producers, somebody that was also on the panel, was one of the Peterson children in, you know, somebody who appeared in the staircase. And I was thinking about her a lot when I was watching this and thinking about how when you are involved in a crime, and are a suspect or, you know, in this case, are actually convicted of something, you either have to participate in every true crime property that you are asked to participate in or to risk being painted in a very specific way just because you aren't there to speak for yourself. And it's an untenable situation, right? Like, I'm not expressing, like, sympathy for people who've done dreadful things, obviously, but I guess it's just like, what else could she have done? Either she had to be in this show and provide a counter narrative, or she had to let whatever happens with the show just happen. And, you know, because of that, that means that we are sort of left thinking, oh, yeah, she is Lady Macbeth. Just because Lady Macbeth died at the end, you know, that doesn't mean anything. Yes. Mm. And in court, she says, Lady Macbeth, 
for people who have actually read it, <laughs> she can't help. Oh no, no, that was a, that was in her New Yorker article. That was oh, it. okay. Yeah. So when you're there, and I'm like, yeah, everybody who's reading the New Yorker's read Lady the the Macbeth play. Everybody has because we all had to read it in middle school, ma'am. Not just y'all. And oh, okay. When yeah. when when the prosecutor was like, you you compared yourself to a famous. I was like Lady Macbeth, and then he's like. Lady Macbeth. I was like, yeah, like, duh. Like, <laughs> of course, because everybody thinks there's somebody. But it was Romeo and Juliet as well, according to Yen. Yeah. yeah, Yen's being here, we all know, I don't, I don't like, I never like when they let the perpetrator talk. Mostly because I, I you know, platform, make me feel weird, feel ooky. I'm trying to sit there and figure out if they're lying. You know, I can get very distracted when it's the the person narrating and i i personally i i did not find yin's i didn't find him a compelling character he felt very rehearsed to me he felt very flippant to me the whole time i was sitting here like why is he out of prison like i just want to get to the part where i know why he's out of prison because i don't think you should be out of prison (laughs) um and i i don't know something about after he finally does get get let out, then him going on media tours, book tours about this, it feels icky. Like it truly does. Like two people lost their lives here. And he's willing to talk to anybody and everybody about it. Like if that's such a traumatizing thing that happened to you, would you want to be this open about it? Like, I don't know. I just... I never like it. I, I truly, truly never like it. I don't I don't really I personally don't think he added anything to the story. I think they could have told his side of the story without him, personally. I think they had all of the archival footage that they needed to do that, especially especially since he basically became a media figure trying to get an appeal to get himself out. So I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm wrong here, but I I just I didn't think it was necessary personally. Well, I'm wondering if part of that was a packaging problem or a problem for the documentarians as they moved forward with the story, because I got the sense this is me speculating, but I got the sense that they sort of got into this thinking that they were going to be telling a wrongful conviction story that this is Mm. like, you know, this is a central park five, you know, Mm -hmm. this is but like right down to the sort of, you know, a false confession. Right. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to tell this story of this, you know, our fellow German who was wrongfully convicted in America where they have the death penalty, they're animals. I agree with the death penalty is bad. Um, but, mm-hmm. you know, and that that was sort of the package. And then as sort of things went on, I mean, this is a problem when you go into a project, right, with maybe sort of an idea of how it should be. And then as things sort of unfurl, you start to have questions because I think that that is that is the challenge. Right. When I got to the end of the show, I have no idea. Who did it? (laughs) I, you know, and I mean, that's something that they make very clear, right? Like his conviction Mm -hmm. was not vacated. They let him out because he'd already served so much time, which I thought, well, that's handy when you're, you know, you have friends like, you know, the former president of Germany. I can think of a lot of guys in Quentin right now who've served a hell of a lot of time, but aren't quite as white. So (laughs) no, 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 they do not know John Grisham. Yeah, John Grisham. And then, yeah, well, I mean, the John Grisham thing is like a whole other thing where all of a sudden it's like, well, Democrats. Yeah. But I think that that's part of the problem because I completely agree with you that I was like, I'm really uncomfortable with how much he's being centered in this narrative about these people who were killed. And then I thought to myself, maybe they're thinking he's the victim of this conviction Hmm. and then they couldn't dig themselves out of that corner. Uh I don't know. I'm just throwing it out there as a possibility. I can agree with that. I can I can agree with that because by the time they did get to his case, because again we saw Elizabeth sentencing first, so by the time we got to his case, the they did I think they did a good job of showing the defense's case first and then the prosecutors, which is you know we all know that's 
it's the opposite way here. Yeah. The prosecutors always present their case and then the, the defense defends. But I think it, it was effective in the documentary because as the defense is going, I was like, hmm, yeah, things things aren't adding up, but also this isn't concrete. You know what I'm saying? Like I was I was sitting here, I was like, I don't know. Like I, I, as it was going on, like I'm, I'm like, he still did it, but it does kind of feel like the defense is breaking down the burden of proof. And then the hot shot uh, prosecutor, uh, Updike, right? I believe uh, he he comes and he presents his prosecution case, and I'm like, "Ooh, ooh, gotcha, gotcha!" There, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, and then you're like, "Okay, now I can see why the the jury did end up finding him guilty." So, um, I think they did a, a masterful job that way in um, kind of building up the the suspense of it all and the reasonable doubt of it all. And then, like you said at the end, at the end, Eve, we're we're really not left. We're really left with not knowing because the moment they were like, "Okay, we got DNA evidence," I was like, "Okay, yes, yes, yes." And then they said, "Okay, it can't be traced back to him." I was like, "Okay." Then they had these other guys, and then they're like, "Then they had these other guys, the dressers, like, yes." <laughs> and then they're like, "But then now there's A, B, and then Y, and l- literally as they're." saying listing well it went from this to this i i I turned to james i said oh it's contaminated and i said i said the blood evidence is contaminated and two seconds later they're like yeah it looked like the blood evidence was contaminated like maybe the victim's blood itself was contaminated i was like yep yep and honestly we should have known because the way that they processed the scene (laughs) that we learned how they processed the scene back in in yen's trial we should have known that that wasn't gonna work you know um so i yeah i i did think that the the last few episodes were very were fantastic when it comes to like the storytelling telling and the narrative for yen's but and i and again i i still think it could have been that good without him Yes, I mean, one of the powerful things about episode four, which is narrated by a journalist, we love it, uh, in a way. She's interviewed, but she is the the narrator that talks about the two sides and talks about people falling so rigidly into one camp or the other Mm -hmm. camp. And I thought this makes complete sense of the theatricality of the prosecutor, for example, would sway a jury. The sock print, blood print, print, junk yeah. science. I have a PhD person. in sock printology, says Someone this other person. PhD, exactly. <laughs> Sarah, Dr. Sarah Real has a PhD in, in sock footprints. Looks she good suggests to me. there is a match. <laughs> so I I liked episode four. The pace picked up. We suddenly got a whole new raft of talking heads. We basically had the same talking heads for the first three, which was comforting. We had Santa Claus. We had the uh, the woman investigator who we saw marvelously in court with her incredible eighties hair, uh, mm-hmm. and then we get these fresh eyes. Uh, Sandy Hausman was a radio reporter, helps us with that. Chip Harding, a former sheriff, says this guy's innocent, and so spends his time, you know, making a case that he's innocent. And as you say, Christian Wolf, former president of Germany, weighs in. So I think that the Political pressure, the who you know in high places pressure. I mean, Jens mm. was the son of a diplomat to start with. I I think gets him out after years of failed appeals. And then, oh, if we let him out for the greater charge of the double murder, we can't leave her in for the charge mm-hmm. of accessory before the fact. So now she sort of by default gets let out. And nobody's satisfied, I think. Even the end, nobody's satisfied. Yeah, which is really interesting because even Elizabeth herself is like, we both deserve to be punished and in jail. Like that, I found that very, very interesting. And I think the con the her the contrast of how she uh, absorbs what happens versus how he does, I think, is what even more makes me more uncomfortable around him because Elizabeth feels like a guilty person who is like. You know, I did it. We did it. I was a part of it. No matter, no matter if I did it, did it, it, you know, because of, of my actions, they did end up dead. And she just was a model prison prisoner as like an actual prisoner. She, she, you know, we're, we're told that she, she, she just 
does her day-to-day routine. She's very quiet on the subject. The only time she talks on the subject is when he gets close to getting out. And some people could see that as like revenge seeking. But to me, I was kind of like, she's probably like, why are y'all letting this guy out? Because he did it. You know what I'm saying? When it's like, she just accepted her punishment versus him who has always maintained his innocence, always pulled these strings always you know talked about it so openly because he can openly say i didn't do it she did it you know i thought that was very interesting their their two two approaches and they still both end up getting out after what was it 33 years uh mm-hmm. sarah yeah. um yeah it fascinating very fascinating how they both were were different well but sarah you could, you one of the one of the things that you questioned well both of you sort of question was his like media touring Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I've been thinking about, too, is do you guys know that thing where people talk about when someone with substance use disorder, you know, alcohol, drugs, whatever, when they go into recovery, their sort of their mental age is the age of, you know, wherever they were when they started using. Right. So, mm. if um, you know, so if I became an alcoholic, uh, well, you know, you whatever, like if I started like using alcohol in excess when I was 15 and I, you know, entered recovery when I'm 35, I still have sort of 15 year old brain. And Mm. I was thinking about that, especially when he's giving um, sort of, I think conversation like at the airport, maybe after he's been deported and he's speaking to everyone and he seems so happy and energized. I was like, this is, this is the teenager. This guy's development Mm. stopped at that point when this crime occurred and he went to jail. And this is something that I've heard, you know, before regarding juvenile offenders, Mm -hmm. that your development stops in that sort of same way. So I think that there's the likelihood that for him and who knows what was going on with Elizabeth, that, you know, they got out of jail still sort of teenagers in their brains. Uh, That really, that really makes sense because I think for me, you can, if you say he's guilty and she's not, their actions back it up. He's not guilty and she is, their actions back it up. And that's, I think, what makes it so fascinating. And when you overlay what you've just said, Eve, where they're still kids in a way. I mean, she was older than him, but only by a couple of years. Yeah. They made a, a very strong and strange point about how during his trial she looked like an adult and he looked like a child. And I thought, well, you know, it's also the style of the time. In the 80s, mm-hmm. women looked considerably older than their ages. <laughs> oh, yeah. It was what we wore and the hairstyles and everything like that. So when the suggestion came, and I was thinking it myself, that they both did it, Meaningfully, they did both do it, like whoever mm-hmm. was actually there with the knife and the sock. They both did it. She accepts that and accepts her punishment, but she feels he needs to be punished as well. And his personality is such that he almost has a persecution complex from her and how brilliant he was at hating himself. It seems like mm. the self-pity of a, of a teenager. So fascinating stuff in there in general I would have thought too much of him but there was something for me kind of fascinating it's almost like is he digging himself into more of a hole or is he explaining himself out of the hole and uh, I was going to ask what we thought about who did it I would say they both did but I don't know whether I mean they actually both held the knife I personally thought they both did it from the jump. So when they had come up with the thing like, oh, no, he he just drove that his whole time. And then, oh, no, she left and she drove. You know, I was kind of like, I wonder if at first they had both agreed to both like kind of take. I'm, I mean, he he took. OK, he confessed and took uh, responsibility for it. And she did blame it on him. But then I think since he had what years, he basically had years to come up with his defense because he was in England, not being it was England, right? Not being extradited back. So you go back and you're like, well, I got a better defense now. Now I can say the the I, I recant my confession and I can say she did it. And now I can come up with this this alibi to muddy the waters to make it really confusing, you know, so. Um, but I, I kind of, I kind of, I lightly on the side of I think they both did it. 
I think maybe, and it's evident there in the shoe prints that might have been her size that the cops didn't follow up on. And the didn't look at print, her shoes. Didn't, didn't look, look at her shoes. shoes. They went and to shoe the, shops and said, see the see this bloody shoe print. Do you recognize that as any shoe? And they're all probably reeling back. But they don't go to they don't go to her they closet. They don't go to her Very closet. Strange. Yeah. Yeah. So and that scene had a lot of blood everywhere. And it also and it also said I don't know if they, I can't remember if they touched on it in the first episode, but they also said that it, it almost kind of looked to me, at least in some of those pictures, it also kind of looked like they were like somebody was trying to mop away some of the blood. I think they did bring that up. So it's like I could definitely see both of them doing it and they just missed some some shoe prints and stuff. I could I could see the reason why he has a sock print there because he got his shoes off, but he took them off and <laughs> like stepped around, you know, the socks, you know. I personally I personally think they were both there um because there's two victim there's two victims. Even if you catch the father off guard, you have to be able to run down and track down the mom before she gets to the door. I think I think there's I think they were both there personally. I think they both did it. Eve, what do you think the documentarians want us to think? I think the documentarians want us to think that this was a heavenly creatures case. That these mm-hmm. that it, back in the day, these are two people who got sort of in one another's sort of intense hormonal, confused uh, mental health thrall. Yeah, and that because of that they worked together to commit this crime. And I feel like that's one of the reasons, Sarah, that they gave us, you know, I, and I agree with you. It was like too much with the diaries, too much with the little typed letters to each other. I, you know, whatever. In like 1985, I was 14. I cannot imagine like typing all these letters to my boyfriend. That just seemed like so much work. Um, but I think that that's what they were trying to convince us. But where it falls apart for me is the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And once again, this just like speaks to, you know, my incredibly advanced age. Uh, Everybody knows that the Rocky Horror Picture Show is what you said you were going to when you were doing some other shenanigans. And Mm, that's like, you know, you're going, you know, either you're like cruising or you're going to go like to a kegger or whatever. And the reason that you say you're going to Rocky Horror is because it's at midnight. And you've already seen it before. So if mom or dad are like, well, what happened in it? You can be like, well, you know, the car broke down. Everyone was dressed up and yeah, yeah. we still all sang. Nobody's yeah. going to notice if you're there or not because it's chaos in the theater with because everybody is acting it out and throwing things or whatever else. You're not going to be noticeable. And so that to me suggests a level of premeditation that goes far beyond everything else like we hear about like oh you know they also bought tickets to like stranger in paradise and everything else well stranger in paradise it was a new release at that point of course they went to see a drama movie but that rock that it seems very likely that time of death was during rocky horror that to me suggests that these are people who planned a homicide and then executed on it and that things fell apart when they got separated and when people decided they wanted to, you know, save their own butts, and then a certain someone started talking about how a certain someone else couldn't get it up until after they killed their parents. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. Killed by murder. I mean, the thing is, they've been on the run. They've been to Thailand. They've been all over. They are in England, and they get caught by the British constabulary for uh, check fraud. So they haven't. So they have perhaps felt free and untouchable they are arrested and separated immediately so there isn't time for them to agree on on what the story is going to be so eve i think that that's i hadn't thought about that but i now you've made me think about that his confession to save her but maybe he thinks she's confessing she's saving herself Mm-hmm. And speaking strangely. Well, we've so, seen this a million times in shows where the two people are separated. I mean, that's like the reason that Sandra Bullock is in jail in Ocean's 8 and the other guy is out, right, to go sit next to Anne Hathaway. This is, you know, this is a thing. That's why they separate you. And it seems like he thought he was falling on his sword. And um, she thought, oh, cool, he's falling on a sword. 
Yes. <laughs> they didn't do what we what we often hear of, which is to go to her and say, well, he says it's all your fault. And then she confesses mm. too. And then everybody goes away to the races. Let's wind up and talk about our magnifying glass ratings. Eve, how many magnifying glasses out of five are you going to rate till murder do us part, soaring versus haysome? Um, as an Airbnb host, I feel that any rating beneath a five somehow suggests that I had a negative stay. So I'm going to shake myself out of that and mm-hmm. say that let's let's I'm going to give this. Can I do decimals? Yes, you can. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'd like to do 3.75, please. Oh, okay. we haven't had one of those is, before. Is that is that high? <laughs> It's uh, it's about about average, I would think. Okay, you know, mm-hmm. yep. we give we give things three that are perfectly cromulent. So three point seven five is above that. Mari, how about you? How many magnifying glasses for this docu series? Yeah, I'm now. I'm now. I feel like I'm almost at the sub point seven five with Eve because at first coming into this discussion, I was like. Did I enjoy that documentary? And as we've talked about it, I think I do appreciate it more. So I'm going to give it a 3.5. I I agree. It's way better than average. I don't think it's perfect by any means. And I had a few gripes with it, so I don't feel like I can give it a four. So uh, I'll give it a 3.5. How about Mm -hmm. you, Sarah? Uh, I'm going to go four. I liked it very much. I you can't you can't double screen and you can't go and get your picture. <laughs> and I think that's always a very good indication. For me, the court the extended courtroom footage they use a lot of it, and they just let it run and they let us watch and hear the two cases unfold. And that to me is it's kind of the gem at the centre of this uh, docuseries and a very, very good choice of not doing snippets but actually entire uh, lines of questioning and uh, the camera work is rather poor, uh, but that is the the court cameras at the time. That and then that fourth episode where the pace picks up and we see the political football that it is. We see the two camps forming and we see that it's not only does it have not that much to do with the ends and Elizabeth, it has absolutely nothing to do with the victims. The victims are completely lost by the time we get to episode four. And I think that's a deliberate decision by the documentary makers to show us who who says their names anymore, you know, who who remembers them. So I liked it very much. I'm going to give it a four. I am going to recommend it, but I'm going to say if you don't like looking at blood, there's entire swathes of this documentary that you actually won't be able to look at. It's just a warning. There's a lot of blood, a lot. Eve, what do you have to recommend to our listeners? What have you been watching, reading, and listening to that you've enjoyed? Well, Prior to uh, what I am doing right now professionally, I was a food writer, and that meant that I did not watch The Bear because everybody was so into it, and I (laughs) thought it would feel like work if I watched it. So um, now that I have another job, I'm writing for Vanity Fair and for the San Francisco Chronicle, but not about food, I decided to finally watch The Bear, and oh my God, that show is so good. Oh my word. I mean, I don't think that it is as. documentary level about working in a restaurant as some people would have you believe of course it's not it's a it's a fantasy it's a fairy tale but it also is extremely inspiring and it's just some it's it's a beautiful show about trauma about damaged people about substance use disorder about trying to get better about how people can always change and it, it I feel like it changed my fall watching that show. And so uh, if you haven't watched it and if you had sort of like been put off by some of like the bear super fans, I feel you. I was with you. Give it a shot. You will not regret it. Yes. As somebody who has also just recently watched it and also recommended it. That's two recommendations y'all. So like, what are y'all, what are y'all waiting for? Go watch it. Yeah. I've, I worked in kitchens in my youth. So that's what's put me off. Cause people say, Oh, it's exactly like, kitchens and that well I leave them so it will um, it will it will definitely reignite some of that trauma it will yes, get, it will 
it will open up some of that PTSD and some of that stress. You will feel it again. I definitely, mm-hmm. I wear a lot of fitness trackers and, um, <laughs> and they let me know, it, oh, you're active. No, I'm not. I'm sitting on the couch watching the bear. So that, that is true, Sarah. You will, but the thing is, it will also heal some of that stored trauma for you. Uh-huh. I assure you. Thank you very yeah. much. It was the eighties. There was a lot of cocaine. I need to say no more. Yeah. <laughs> Ari, what do you have to recommend to our listeners? I'm going to recommend the uh, Netflix just recently released The Killer, starring uh, Michael Fassbender and Tilda Swinton, directed by David Fincher on Netflix. It was really good. I'm not really a like action-y type of girl, but this was very good and like almost kind of hard to explain david fincher of course legendary director he basically michael fassbender is a a hitman he's an assassin and you're basically following him as he's like trying to clean up after a job and it's such a fascinating movie because there's not much dialogue at all and all like 80 percent of dialogue is all inner monologue from uh, Fassbender's character. And a lot of it is repeated dialogue, but it feels so in the moment. It feels so in the moment. It feels so fast paced. It feels like um, one of those movies where, uh, what is it? Like a real time movie, you know, like a movie in real time, like almost like you're watching these events unfold like right now. So very, very good watch, very intense, but also riveting <laughs> so and i think if you're a fan of david fincher you're, you're you're gonna love it so i would definitely recommend that sarah how about you <laughs> well next week's guest rebecca lavoy from crime writers on recommended a podcast called let's go to court so naturally i rushed to my podcatcher to listen and it is fantastic the podcast brings together two of the finest legal minds of our time Kristen Caruso and Brandy Egan. They have one semester of law school and one semester of criminal justice between them. So naturally, they are experts, just like Mari and me. Mm-hmm. They have great tr- takes on true crime cases. They they tell each other stories. They have wonderful banter and laughter and in multiple enjoyable tangents. Basically, the podcast is tangents with a couple of on-topic sentences in there. And mm-hmm. as if Rebecca would ever steer us wrong, it is fantastic. So that's Let's Go to Court. All these recommendations will be in the show notes. At Crime Scene, we're eager to hear your feedback and suggestions for further episodes. You can follow Crime Scene on Twitter at Crime Scene RHAP, that's S-E-E-N, or email us at RHAP at gmail.com. We're also on TikTok at crime.scene and on Instagram, threads, and Facebook at Crime Scene Podcast. And please remember to subscribe to our feed by going to robhasawebsite.com slash crime feed. It makes a huge difference. It does. So, Eve, what do you have going on and where can the people find you if you want to be found? (laughs) Oh, I'd love to be found. Um, You can find me on Instagram threads or blue sky i'm eve l b i write for vanity fair i'm there i'm sorry i have a dog that wants my attention i apologize for the sounds mm-hmm. um i um am the weekend editor uh on, at vanity fair for the hollywood and vanity sections so if you want like goofy celebrity taylor and travis stuff um i'm there every saturday and sunday morning um during the week i write features for them i also write about books for the san francisco chronicle and I write a true crime newsletter with Sarah D. Bunting. It's called Best Evidence. It's bestevidence.fyi. And what do you have going on, Mari? Where can the people find you? As always, you can find me on Twitter at Mari Talks Too Much. That's two, like the number two. And um, over on the Connect on Post Show Recap, me and Chappelle and the rest of the Connect are talking about rap shit season two. Um, we are just a few episodes into season two, and this show is amazing. If you didn't get to see uh, season one of Rap Shit, you can go and you can binge it now. It's on Max. It's a thirty-minute. It's a it's thirty-minute um, show. Um, the first season had, I believe, it was eight episodes. I want to say, and the second season just started. We're about three episodes deep. 
It is about two, uh, two, two girls from Miami who try to make it as rappers. And it is just phenomenal. Um, it's by Issa Rae Production, her pr- production company. And if you're familiar with the Connect on Post Show recaps, we covered um, the final season of Insecure. So this is right up our alley. And we're just we're just loving doing all the coverage of on like prestige black television over there. So you can go to postshowrecaps.com slash connect in order to subscribe and to um, listen to that. Or you can go and watch our video podcast over on the Post Show Recaps YouTube page. I'm um, just uh, search the connect on Post Show Recaps. Um, but that that's all I have going on right now. And again, I'm loving it. So if you want to hear me and Chappelle cutting up. <laughs> being a little x-rated over there uh definitely go check that out it's so much fun uh sarah what about you where can people find you well they can follow me on twitter if they'd like to do that at sarah Carradine. over on silent podcasts my coverage of the amazing race continues as annabelle fiddler and i had a q a with race phd jess lease and on post-show recaps, Grace Leader, Brooklyn Z and I interviewed award-winning costume designer and fellow Aussie, Gypsy Taylor, about her work on Our Flag Means Death Season 2. You're going to want to hear that. It's fantastic. Also on post-show recaps, I'm talking The Buccaneers with Geneva Guadalupe, A Murder at the End of the World with Latonya Starks, and The Artful Dodger with Brooklyn Z. I was at the RHAP live events in Los Angeles for Survivor and Big Brother recently, and it was incredible to meet so many of you. So thank you for making me feel welcome and being interested in whatever I had to say. I don't know if I was that interesting, but you you looked interested. Mm -hmm. So thank you for that. If you have FOMO, you can get your tickets for the live event in New Orleans on December 6th at robhasawebsite.com slash events. And Crime Scene will be represented there by the great Mari Forth. Find her and have a chat. Next time on Crime Scene, we're covering Escaping Twin Flames, Can't Get Away From These Cults, Eve, with Rebecca Lavoy. You can watch it on Netflix and send us your comments and questions. Thanks so much to Eve Beatty for joining us, Will from America for the theme music, and the whole RHAP team behind the scenes. Until next time, case Case closed. closed.